When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It was just over two years ago, in November 2019, when a huge cache of classified Chinese government documents first emerged. More than 400 pages of leaked Communist Party documents detail the mass incarceration of mostly Muslim Uyghurs and other minorities. The leaked documents were published by the New York Times, which called them the Xinjiang Papers. Among them were internal speeches given by Communist Party officials detailing the crackdown on ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. And they linked President Xi Jinping to the campaign through speeches he made in 2014. Including President Xi Jinping. Calling for absolutely no mercy in the crackdown. China stands accused of committing crimes against humanity and possibly even genocide against the Uyghur population in Xinjiang a vast region in the northwest of the country. But China says its system of quote-unquote re-education camps in Xinjiang are there to combat separatism and Islamist militancy in the region. To understand where we are now, we have to go back to 2009. And relative calm has returned to the streets of Urumqi in western China, where ethnic riots left more than 150 dead and hundreds more injured. And a riot that broke out in Xinjiang's capital city, Urumqi, following the death of two Uyghurs during a brawl at a factory in Guangdong, far in the south of the country. It's the latest death toll, 156 dead, more than 800 injured. State television has aired plenty of footage of bodies, bloodied people, smoke billowing from overturned cars. Other incidents followed. In 2013, a vehicle crashed into the crowd in Tiananmen Square in the capital, Beijing, killing two people. And a year after that... Outside the station at the scene of the attack, a temporary memorial has sprung up. 29 people died during a knife attack at a railway station in Kunming in the southwest of the country. Authorities here are blaming separatists from the troubled Xinjiang region. If confirmed, this will be a further deepening of that decades-old conflict and happening a long way from Xinjiang itself. Chinese officials said both the Tiananmen Square attack and the one in Kunming had been terrorist attacks carried out by Xinjiang separatist forces and that a crackdown was necessary to prevent terrorism and root out Islamist extremism. Hello, and welcome to The China Problem, 
are thinking with me, James Harding. This series of podcasts is intended, like all our thinkings, all the open news meetings that we hold in our newsroom, to try and get to a better understanding of what to think. It's rooted, honestly, in a certain bewilderment and uncertainty about how to handle China. If you like, I'm trying to revisit the country. I went to Xinjiang in the 1990s. The countryside is sweeping and spectacularly beautiful. And I can still smell the lamb kebabs dusted in spices and smoking over coals in the streets of Urumqi and Kashgar. But in the two decades since then, no journalist talks about Xinjiang with quite such a romantic lilt. It's become the most acute example of overweening Chinese state control. Exhibit A of Xi Jinping's authoritarianism and the West's apparent impotence to defend human rights within China's borders. In the past couple of years, more gruelling details have surfaced of the Communist Party's industrial apparatus of control in Xinjiang. Amongst them, details of mass sterilizations, the eradication of the language and culture, and forced labour. Western voices criticising China's record in Xinjiang province and Hong Kong have grown louder in recent months. But Beijing's narrative hasn't changed. This is not Europe's business, China says. This amounts to interference in China's internal affairs. Beijing compares its policy in Xinjiang to the West's war on terrorism. It surely is as entitled to defend its citizens from acts of terrorism within its borders. This, more than any of the other issues we've discussed in this series, is the sharp end of the China problem. Joining us from the rainiest city in Europe, Bergen in Norway, is Uyghur writer, linguist and activist Abdulwali Ayop. And to provide some insight on human rights, we have Yachu Wang, China researcher for Human Rights Watch, and Helena Kennedy. Helena is an international human rights lawyer who runs the Institute of Human Rights for the International Bar Association. She was sanctioned by China for her stance on Hong Kong and Xinjiang, but she says sanctions are not contagious. And Raffaello Pantucci, Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, Rusi, is dialing in from Singapore. Abdulwali, if I might, I'm going to ask you to, to start just by telling us your personal story, because I hope that will give us a way of thinking more generally about Beijing and Xinjiang. Uh, I can say myself as a model citizen because I grew up in a Chinese officials' family. Both parents are government officials. They are teachers. And I went to Beijing, Minzu University. It's Chinese example university for ethnic students like me. And after that, I worked uh, different two Chinese universities and I studied in the United States. And, and Abdulwali, can I just ask you, just forgive me, do you, did you grow up in Kashgar? Yes. And how old are you? Well, 48. So in your teens and 20s, were things significantly different to the way they've been in the last 10, 15 years? It's significantly different, uh, especially like uh, since 1997, we can say that we have golden age, like education and uh, like treatment. We have some different treatment, but it's not largely different. Like if you have a good education, if you have a good family background and you can live with the normal life, you can enjoy uh, the treatment as Han Chinese. So, so, so when and how did things change, Abdulwali? It is uh, changed in 1997. And uh, because of the um, 
cultural restriction. We have a culture like Meshrep culture. Every winter, people uh, gather uh, once a week in different uh, house. But uh, it restricted first in Hulja in 1995. And two years restriction resulted with the big demonstration in Hulja. During the demonstration, people got arrested. And there is a conflict between uh, Uyghur and the Chinese armed forces. And mass arrest happened. And then suddenly, we have a different atmosphere, different treatment, and different policy. For example, that education, like uh, Uyghur restricted in higher education, and Uyghur restricted some area, for example, that like uh, army and high technology, like uh, air flight. And Abdulli, how would you describe the conditions for Uyghur people in Xinjiang now? No, like it's a nightmare. 100% different. We have never experienced this life before. For example, that my family experienced cultural revolution. Yes, it's cultural revolution, oppression, and this destruction happened. But at that time, it happened to both Uyghur and Han Chinese. So your, but your family now, what's happened to them in Xinjiang? Uh, my uh, sister got arrested and sentenced 12 years. And my brother arrested and sentenced 14 years. And my niece, she studied prestigious university in Japan. And she went back to China 2019. And she died in 2020, December 20th, in the concentration camp. I'm so sorry. And, and when... When you're talking about your brother and your sister, what were they arrested and convicted for? Uh, my uh, brother arrested because of at the time I spoke up to the Uyghur students who arrested in, in Egypt in 2017. Egypt, uh, student, Egypt police uh, arrested uh, more than 100 uh, students. At the time, I spoke to the media and it's retaliation and my brother got arrested. The second time, my uh, after that, my uh, sister arrested, and both of them sentenced in uh, 2019. And and where are they held now, Abdulali? Where, where uh, are they one, imprisoned? My uh, brother is in uh, Tumshuk city. It's a uh, uh, we have a uh, industrialized uh, army forces in in China. We call it uh, construction army, Bingtan. It's a city that that Tumshuk is a city belongs to that construction army, and my brother is there. And my sister also uh, in another construction army, four army base in Oksu. They are in different two cities right now. Abdullah, I'm going to come back to you in a moment, but I want to ask Yachu Wang, before I come to Rafaelo and to Helena, about how the world responds to this. Yachu, when you hear this, how much is Abdullah an exception or how systematic are you seeing imprisonment, incarceration, and the uh, the deaths of Uyghur people in Xinjiang? I don't think it's exceptional at all. You know, this happened to many other families. Uh, you know, Abdulwey was talking about, you know, he is, uh, is from a model family. Like, you know, we were intellectuals, we are party members. That's what, you know, the government want us to be. However, you know, no matter how good we were as citizens, uh, how educated we were, how high-skilled we are, we are still persecuted for basically being who we are. And this happened. I mean, the reason I hear those stories is because, you know, the more educated people 
Uyghurs had more opportunity to live abroad. You know, they are the people who are telling us the stories. I'm sure you know this happened to families who are not belong to you know, middle class or from families that uh, were educated or uh, you know economically well off. So, I mean, overall, we all know that about. Uh, one million people are in the camps. You know, those are the people who are in the camps. Then there are people who are on the constant surveillance uh, outside of camps. So this is not something you know, unique at all. Uh, and Yacho, this is probably a very unfair question. Uh, uh, forgive me, I assume you're Han Chinese, right? Yes. Your family. How many people, I mean, what do you think is the level of discomfort amongst Han Chinese people in China around what's happening in Xinjiang? Are people looking away or do they think... Actually, there is a real security threat that's caused by Uyghurs in China. How do friends and family or, or your reading of the Chinese media suggest that Chinese citizens themselves look at what's happening in, in Xinjiang? Well, I think, first of all, the majority have no idea what's going on. But most people, they don't watch the government's official news because it's boring, right? So they don't know. I mean, among the people who let's say, follow government propaganda news and who have some interactions with people in Xinjiang, Uyghurs in Xinjiang. You know, it's, it's very, very unfortunate. Uh, I think a lot of them do believe uh, there are horrible, you know, terrorism going on. You know, the Uyghurs try to carry out terroristic activities against Han. So I think there were a lot of, uh, you know, misinformation people believe, which has a lot to do with, you know, two incidents. The car crash happened in, in Tiananmen, and then there's the uh, Kunming train station. So that two single in- incidents was amplified through, uh, you know, propaganda media, and people had the an impression that a lot of such incidents were going on. You know, we were threatened. There was a genuine threat to the Han population. A lot of people who had that impression of what's going on in Xinjiang However, you know, working at this job at Human Rights Watch, I receive messages from people in China who tells me, oh, my God, I just found out this thing going on in Xinjiang. I can't believe it. You know, I feel, you know, I'm trembling, things like that. You know, I feel very ashamed as a Han to not speak up. Right. And I just want to get a sense of within the human rights community, you know, for all the time that I ever covered China, there were always human rights issues. There were issues about dissidents in terms of politics. There were issues about people who spoke out in terms of the media. And I know you and I have spoken before around that, for example, around COVID and truth telling on in the pandemic. But when you look from the Human Rights Watch perspective at the Xinjiang issue by comparison with political dissent in China, do you think that you're dealing with just a different scale of problem? Because we haven't used the word genocide, but widely around the world, people are accusing China of perpetrating a genocide. Is that the way you see it? Absolutely. I think there are different scales. Uh, you know, for human rights activists, there's a reason why they are persecuted, because they criticize the government. They, are, uh, they want justice. And for Uyghurs and, and other Turkic Muslims, there's no reason. It's only because of who they are, basically, for it exists. I mean, that's a completely different scale. Also, you know, for human rights activists, they could be persecuted and their family can be harassed. But, the, you know, they could go to jail for what they do. But mostly their family are harassed, intimidated. You know, it doesn't amount to they 
their families go to jail as well. In, in Xinjiang, that's not the case. You know, your entire family are in the camps. So, so I want to, as much possible, please do feel free to weigh in, but I want to bring in Helena and Raffaello if, if I can. Helena, uh, the, the question I suppose that I start with here is, well, what do we do? What do you think we from the outside can do? Well, I mean, I, I just think that a better kind of conversation could be had with the Chinese government. I mean, I may be, I may be imagining that and, and others tell me that, I, that this is a, a fantasy of mine. But, you know, we have our own historic parallels that we can use with them when they say we're dealing with a level of terrorism because we've also dealt with terrorism. We've also at times where I have to tell you that in my own practice at the bar, I did many of the big Irish cases during the Irish troubles. And, and there was a sense um, felt in the Irish community of the United Kingdom, um, but particularly in the big cities, there was a sense that they too were being criminalized, that they were suspect, that they were all under scrutiny. And, uh, and Irish people talked about difficulties in getting certain kinds of jobs. I knew a woman who was uh, uh, had a job as a sort of typist in a police station and she lost her job because she was Irish and they decided they didn't want anybody who was Irish in there working and hearing things that she might be passing on to people and so on. And but, so, but, but, just, but, but Helena, just so forgive me for interrupting, but you, there's a really important point there. You think that to make progress with China in terms of Xinjiang, you have to recognise China's fear of terrorist attacks and threats to domestic security. Yeah, I do, because because also, I mean, I'm just telling all of you for, for, to locate this in something that lets us step into a, a Chinese mindset around this, which, which then can spread to the people, you see, which is we're dealing with terrorism here, you know, and amongst the Uyghur, I'm sure there are the occasional people who think I would like us to become independent and I would like us to be free of the whole Chinese uh, apparatus uh, coming from Beijing. And I'm sure there are people who feel that. We've got people in Scotland who feel pretty much the same way too. And that's where I come from. The reason that I spoke out in Parliament and tried to get an amendment to a trade bill, which said we don't trade with people who might be engaging in what are crimes against humanity and uh, even a potential genocide. The reason why we did that, David Alton and myself, was because I think that you do have to use certain sticks as well as as well as the diplomacy arguments, and I, I and we felt that having that as something that we we use as an instrument to bring people to a, to the table would be a good thing. I'm going to come back to that in a second because I'd actually like to have a whole conversation about what are the levers, sticks and carrots. I just want to hear from Raffaello first, just because I want to get everyone's point of view. I think it's really important to get a sense of what's driving it and and the way in which that's perceived. And Raffaello, I wonder whether you think that Helena's right, that, that in order to actually engage in this conversation and to resolve or try and make progress on what's happening in Xinjiang, you have to, to an extent, accept or see things from that Beijing point of view. I think that's essential. I think that if you're going to try to engage on an issue of fundamental domestic security policy from a Chinese perspective and from a Chinese public perspective as well, you know, to not engage and appreciate that side of the debate, you're never going to get through uh, because you're never going to be able to persuade the government. Any government is ultimately beholden to its people to some degree. And if the people all look in one direction and think in one direction, it's very difficult to completely go against that. So I think some degree you have to acknowledge and engage with that. I think the bigger problem that the West has at the moment in terms of talking to China about this specific issue is that it's become so entangled with the bigger 
geopolitical clash that we see between the United States and China in particular, and more broadly the West and China. That means that it's it's impossible in some ways to engage on any of the specific issues you'd want to around trying to deal with this very thorny domestic problem because any attempt to do that is seen in this wider light. And so any admission or any give way by the Chinese government will be seen as a sign of weakness to their own people or an admission of defeat against the West. And what government likes to have to change its domestic policy on a fundamental issue that it's, you know, it sells national security and people believe is national security as a result of external pressure. So I think until we're able to disentangle that, I think it's going to be almost impossible, frankly, to really get the Chinese to do much, uh, to move very far on uh, a lot of these questions. But I suppose, Rafaela, that my difficulty here is that, as I said at the beginning, I I start this conversation about China with a real warmth, a personal love of China and a happy association with, with, with people and times in China. And what feels as though has happened to me is that the realities of Xi Jinping's China has crept up on me. And whether that's been around Hong Kong or warmongering around Taiwan or, you know, TikTok and truth, all those things, they're all, I suppose, of a certain kind of China problem that have been historic. The question I've got, the thing that makes me uncomfortable is that whether or not, whether we're witnessing in Xinjiang something that is of a different order of magnitude, if it really is the mass incarceration of a people, if it really is a kind of genocide, an institutionalized injustice against a race of people, then isn't the issue here, Raffaello, that at that stage, you've got to say, look, we're going to have to put all of the other things aside because otherwise we're going to be party to bystanding to a human rights offense on an industrial scale. It's very difficult to be able to categorize these things in the same way because one could argue that a lot of the issues we're seeing around Xinjiang have been happening to Chinese people for some time already. The idea of political re-education, the idea of a sort of state, you know, clamping down on its people is not particularly new. I mean, I lived in China for four years and, you know, I was there in, you know, the late noughties to the early 2010s, uh, you know, in Shanghai, which is a very open and uh, prosperous place and certainly, you know, in touch with us. And you would still see these stories and you hear these instances of people beginning shut down. But you, but you had then, but I suppose that the, the, the reason why I'm pressing this is that that was the China that I think Abdul was describing in the 1990s. Of course, the state was leaning in. Of course, the party was, it was on your shoulder. That's different from imprisonment. That's different from the kind of harassment that's leading to people dying in large numbers. I'm not totally sure that a lot of other Chinese people would necessarily see it in the same way. I mean, the issue we have to also remember around, I think, the Uyghur community in China is it's actually very small as a proportion of the wider Chinese population. I mean, China's a country of 1.4 billion people, I think, is the sort of current number that rattles around, right? I think the Uyghur population, and others, please correct me if I'm wrong, is roughly 10 million or so that live for the most part in a very remote part of China that most Chinese people have never been to, most Han Chinese. I mean, when we think Chinese, we think of Han Chinese, right? And that accounts for 95% of the overall population of the country. And those people have been living under government in China that's been very oppressive for some time. Now, of course, there are degrees of oppression. And I would certainly say that what we've seen under Xi Jinping is a real tightening of control and a real closure of the sort of political space writ large. One could argue that that's been going on for some time. Um, and so in a way, what you're seeing happening with the Uyghurs in particular is a very extreme example of this. And, you know, I don't want to downplay all the misery and, and the difficulty that, you know, and, and the specific suffering that we've heard about from Abdulwali's family, which is horrible. And I can only, I can't imagine, frankly, uh, what that must be like. But I think if we put them in the wider context of Chinese public more generally, 
They've been dealing with a government that's been like this for some time. The only big stories they know about Uyghurs necessarily are either this idea of this sort of happy minority that lives off on the fringes, or frankly, what they saw happen in Kunming, which was where a group of people started wildly slashing at random passersby who were going about mm. their business with knives, or someone who was trying to drive trucks through crowds, again, hanging around in Tiananmen Square. Now, I know there's specific context around both these incidents, but to the public, that's the kind of story that they see. And so from their perspective, you know, the general story of oppression is not a particularly new one. Let's let's say, for argument's sake, that we see that there's going to be a spectrum of opinion about what's happening in Xinjiang. So you might take a official Chinese line, which is in response to domestic terror threats that imperil the safety of Chinese citizens, there has been a crackdown in Xinjiang, which is justified in the way in which domestic crackdowns have happened in other countries in response to terrorist threats. Or you take the view that you would hear from certainly many Uyghur activists who would say this is a modern genocide. There is a there is a concerted effort to incarcerate and reduce um, the life prospects of Uyghur people in Xinjiang. I think that it's possible to say, and I find it hard to challenge the idea that this is the largest state-sanctioned act of mass incarceration in the world. I can't think of North Korea incarcerates an awful lot of its people as well. I fair point. Say. Okay, fair point, Rafael. That's a fair point. You'd, but you would definitely consider that to be a pariah state. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do business no, with certainly. North Korea. So of the countries that the West engages with, this is the, the, the largest of its kind. And in one form or other, you can agree that this is a mass human rights violation. So uh, we, we can agree to differ on exactly the causes and the scale of it, but let's, let's agree on that area. At that point, you go back to Helena's question, which is, how do you engage in a way that's actually going to make a difference here? So, so I mean, Helena, why don't you, you go first on the sort of range from advocacy to boycott, and then I'm going to come to Abdul and Yachul. Let, let me immediately say that when China has, I think Raphael and I are sort of almost in agreement, that there has been a reaching for many of the things that have been done in the past, coercing women into sterilization, uh, coercing people in many different ways, taking people's children from them and putting them into sort of the equivalent of borstals, you know, uh, so that they actually become deracinated to distance them from their own culture and from their own parents and so on. Th those, those practices, I think, have existed, um, but it's the concentration of them on a minority. And it's a minority that they are seeing as being the seat from which comes uh, uh, terror. Now, my thing is, that yes, I mean, and, and there are great discussions that happen um, between international human rights lawyers, which is about, you know, is this really, should you be using the terminology genocide? Why is it necessary? These are terrible crimes against humanity. We shouldn't sort of devalue crimes against humanity as if they're lesser when, when, when such grievous things are happening uh, to people. And, and I see the evidence. I mean, I've, and I've spoken with many of the, the Uyghur witnesses uh, uh, about all of this. And I have no doubts about the extent of the horror. I think, you see, what people forget is the Genocide Convention says that we have a duty as nations to prevent genocide. 
And you see, I think that what we're seeing are pointers of, of traveling in a direction which is to remove the identity for whole people. And there are many different ways in which that is being done. And so it's, you know, you don't wait until the end of a genocide and say there was a genocide here. You wait, you stop it happening. And I think that all the trajectories are pointing towards this is about removing of, a, of an identity of a people. And, and, and just, and Helena, can I ask you to answer your own question? How do you then stop it from happening? Nations do do horrible things to minorities. They, they do terrible things to the Roma in Eastern Europe. We, we know that these things happen. The discriminations against minorities are, are, are happening around our world. We have to have a conversation in which we say nations are, are in fact combinations of peoples. And to create nationhood, you don't just sort of, you know, somehow force people to be to into a form of assimilation that makes them lose their own sense of identity, their religion or whatever. You have to have a conversation with China, I think, which is about many of our nations are confronted with some of these things. We've been confronted with terrorism. We've been confronted with peoples who want to, in order to retain their identity, would say we'd rather be separate. Scotland, um, Ireland, uh, you know. So these things are happening in all of Spain as well, has it? I mean, many nations are having those things. And we have to say to China, you're not different, but the ways, the solutions to this are not to do what is currently happening in your country. And, and we, we want to trade with you. We want to be involved with you, but we're not going to feel content about doing that while this is going on. And, you know, and so I think that somehow you have to move to a conversation, which is engaging with a, with a recognition of the challenges that are presented to governments by difference, by people wanting to retain difference, but at the same time that you don't force them into some kind of crazy assimilation like they're yes. seeking to do and getting rid of people and punishing people who somehow seem to, and their families, um, because yeah. there, there are critics amongst it. I w well, I want to ask Yacho uh, first, is that wishful thinking? Can China be persuaded to behave differently? Well, I think at this point, uh, it's hard. I, I, you know, I don't think China doesn't understand that you know other countries have minority issues, right? And uh, different governments are facing similar ethnic issues. I, I just don't think you know they don't understand that. You know, the political system is very closed off. They have established this narrative of organized ter terrorist activities by the Uyghur and other Turkic Muslims. Muslims they can walk back from that narrative. That narrative was you know, so seen in evidence. So I think more realistically, we need to hold China accountable through hard measures. Such as? So there have already been actions taken by the US government banning tomatoes and the cotton from the Xinjiang region. And there is a bill right now in Congress that aims to ban all, you know, uh, imports from the Xinjiang region. Those are the things that uh, our China cares. Uh, you know, there needs to be, mo more needs to be done on the economic side, not just, you know, hard material goods. It's also about, you know, investments, uh, things that are related to Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Yacho, of boycotting the Beijing Winter Olympic Games? Well, Human Rights Watch stand is that, you know, athletes have invested uh, or worked so hard to realize their goals and dreams, and, it, and by you know not having uh, an Olympic for canceling Olympic, it's unfair to them. But I don't think anybody else should engage in the uh, Beijing Olympics, whether it's you know sponsors, which are you know the big businesses or government uh, uh, officials. They should not attend the game, and also international celebrities, dignities, they should stay away from the game. I think at this point, 
to advocate to relocate again is unrealistic. So I think all other people except the athletes should stay away. I agree. Can I can can I put you agree with that, Helena? Can Abdulwali? Can I put and forgive me? This is going to be a depressing lens through which to look at this. If you are Xi Jinping and you're a student of the Communist Party's rule, and you look at the history of how the party operated in Tibet from 1987, you might well conclude that this works. Yes, there are going to be a certain small minority of people who are going to complain around about it around the world, but in the end, the party is going to strengthen its position. The opposition amongst that ethnic community is going to be reduced. It will take a generation, but it works. How realistic do you think is that is the assessment that Xi Jinping has made? Actually, like Xi Jinping is living in Beijing. If he can see, there is a street in Beijing uh, we call Ganjiakou. Uh, there, there are, there are, there is a Uyghur uh, district in Ganjiakou, and people mm-hmm. lived there uh, started from uh, 1980s, and they have a big uh, like neighborhood there. More than thousand people are living there and doing business. Xi Jinping should think that this is the maybe this is the model. Maybe we can live in the same city, and that such small group of people can be a window of Uyghur culture, can introduce Uyghur culture to uh, in uh, Chinese mainland. But he didn't do it. He didn't enjoy this different culture inside Beijing, and uh, that the Uyghur district demolished in uh, I think 2005, demolished the entire district. If you cannot deal with the small group of people living with you, how can you bear with those people twelve million? So the first of all, you have to learn how to live with them. So and, and Abdulwali, if the if the if the record so far is of a Chinese Communist Party led by Xi Jinping, unwilling or unable to live with a minority community in his own city, what does that tell you about the future for the Uyghur people in Xinjiang? What's your view of what the solution to this is? I think uh, it's uh, really hard because uh, already, uh, like, I can just tell you one example that my sister uh, arrested and uh, her kids are in maybe in the ch- in ch- in children's camp, and how can she feel that she can live with the kids? never parents never been arrested and never been restricted and never forced to speak a totally different language and how can she feel to live together and make a friend with them so so that's my question is whether or not the result of this makes it impossible to go to the world that Helene is describing, which is a world that says, look, we're going to have different identities, different ethnicities, and we're going to live together. That the result of this mass incarceration is the radicalization, the further radicalization of Uyghur people. And it means that the movement for an independent Xinjiang is now going to be strengthened, if anything, by this. That the tensions around Xinjiang are only beginning. They're not closer to ending. Yes, I agree with it. Because of after you incarcerate millions of people, and how can they people live a normal life related to like million of people arrested and other millions of people related to them? They already influenced with them. And how can they feel safe and how can they feel like happy with the, this environment and how can they live securely in that in that environment? It's impossible. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Rafaela, what do you say then? What's the, what's the advice you give to governments elsewhere in terms of how they engage with China, if you begin to think there's going to be a long-term Xinjiang problem here? I mean, I think that I, I think if we really want to focus on this particular issue, um, then I think we need to find a way of disentangling it from the broader clash that's going on, because there is no good that is going to come from that in the sense of actually trying to resolve this issue. And I mean resolving that in terms of getting China to change its policies. I think as long as we have this kind of geopolitical clash going on, I think when the West gets up and says, you know, China's doing these atrocious things in Xinjiang, the Chinese can say, well, you would say that you're against us at the moment, you're fighting us. So whatever, you know, it all gets wrapped up into the same bow and that gets responded to collectively by the government on the one hand, but also by the public. So if to the, I think at the public level in China, there's a sense that whatever the West is saying about China at the moment is seen through this lens of we hate China. China's the big enemy. And so it doesn't even matter how much evidence or whatever else is presented at a certain point. First of all, because frankly, it won't, you know, a lot of information doesn't get into China. <laughs> you know, the senses are quite effective. But second, because people will say, well, they would say that they're, you know, the West is fighting us. The West is building alliances in the Indo-Pacific to attack us from the seas. They're strengthening their relations with Taiwan to create a war there. They're fighting us here. You know, that, that, that's the general narrative. And so within that context, whatever is said about China is seen through that lens. And so that means when you get down to a human rights question like Xinjiang, where you actually want movement because you're worried about the human right abuses that are happening out there, it's essentially impossible to get the Chinese to budge on it because the Chinese would say, well, you know, if we give way on that, we will look like we're giving way to the West in general. And so we lose and they will never do that. Actually, for enough, I think that's really helpful because I think if you said, look, we're going to organize our China problems, we're going to say, look, we've got a bunch of economic competition problems tariffs, technology surveillance, labor standards, those are, if you like, the common or garden West China problems. Then you've got what people now talk about as the existential problems, climate, COVID, the pandemic. And then you have, 
it seems to me, the most difficult set of problems, which are problems that relate to, if you're Chinese, national interest, domestic issues, or if you're Western, issues of human rights and values. So those three seem to me to be Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Xinjiang. And Xinjiang, of all of them, seems to me to be the most difficult because there's no external agency. So if you just focus on Xinjiang, what is the way that you disentangle it from all those other issues and find a forum that enables you to have a meaningful conversation directed specifically at the Xinjiang issue? I mean, if I'm brutally honest with you, I struggle, frankly, to see that happening at the moment um, because the wider context is so <laughs> absolutely negative and against that. And I know that sounds incredibly defeatist uh, and negative, but I, I genuinely don't see how you can disentangle it at the moment. Um and so until the tenor of the conversation between the West and China has been brought down, I struggle to see any way of actually getting meaningful discussion going on this. I would say people have tried. You know, this is not, uh, th people have been trying this for some time. This, what's happening in Xinjiang has been happening for some time. And, you know, uh, as, um, uh, as Abdulwali pointed out, it goes back to 1997. And the between 97 and 2009, really, there was no outside engagement on it. But 2009, it really did start to come to everyone's attention. Um, and then if you look for, you know, what we've seen over the past few years, it has been there and people have been aware of the fact that this has sort of been happening since, you know, 2016, 2017. And there have been attempts by Western governments to engage with China. In fact, to exactly the lens that uh, Baroness Kennedy was talking about, you know, this idea of engaging on uh, with the Chinese on this saying you have got a terrorist problem. We have a terrorist problem, too. Actually, if you look at some of the you know groups like Al Qaeda, there are Uyghur people who have joined with the group and fought with them. So there is a connection there. And they have tried to engage with them through that lens. And the problem is that the Chinese have said, yes, OK, but that's how you deal with it. We're going to deal with it in our particular way, which is even more extreme than the way that the West does it. And they say, well, this is our way of fixing our internal problems. And, you know, I think the other issue we have, which is a real problem around trying to disentangle this, is that, you know, we sitting in the West look at it through this lens. But if you're sitting in a lot of other parts of the world where you've got authoritarian or semi-authoritarian governments, who are, you know, clamping down on other communities or are dealing with other problems domestically in a way that's not identical to how China handles it, but has, you know, let's say it, it echoes or resonates with certain aspects of it. They're not going to start getting up on their high horse about this and joining some sort of Western crusade against this, because on the one hand, it will be interpreted as being joining the anti-China anti crusade coming out of the West, but also because you don't throw stones in glass houses. You know, at the moment, the approach is being taken by the West, which is a sort of targeted approach of pressure through companies, pressure through individual cases. I think we should have more pressure, frankly, on individual cases. We have seen in the past that that does get some movement from the Chinese on those specific ones. I think that's a far more realistic prospect, frankly, than expecting the CCP to wholesale change its policies towards what it perceives as its own minority, on its own minority, on its own territory, in response to Western pressure. Rafaela, thank you. I want to ask Helena and Yacho a question then in the light of this. You know, a lot of people, you know, Yacho, you're a human rights campaigner. Helena, you're a human rights lawyer. And the reality is, people like me, we admire you. We think, gosh, you know, that's an amazing thing to do with your life. But how do you actually handle it on the day-to-day -day basis? Helena, I'm going to ask you first, because you must respect the realism of what Rafaela is saying. 
right? It's, it's unlikely that your efforts, even when you stand up in the House of Lords and you say, we need to do X and Y on trade policy, that it's, it's going to move the dial at all. And how do you keep getting up in the morning? What's the argument that you make to yourself of the impact that you're going to have? Is it simply to make a noise? Is it, in that sense, performative? Is it, is it solving, solving your own conscience, but not necessarily making a difference on the ground? How do you make sense of what you're trying to do? Well, you, you see, you take some sustenance from the fact that every so often you do see something happening which really is different, you know, where the dial does move. You see, I, I'm old enough to have been actively involved as a young person and through my 20s in the anti-apartheid movement. And I was very much involved with it and very deeply involved in it. So, you know, I knew people who were exiled ANC members. I had Oliver Tambo in my home. I had, I knew all those people who ended up in the government. I knew Albie Sachs and all of those lawyers who made change eventually in, the, in South Africa after Mandela came out of prison. So there was a moment, you know, where that dial did shift. And so you know that everybody, every, every piece of work you're doing can actually work towards that. I saw it happening even around the business of Ireland. I mean, I've done lots of the big national security cases in this country, not just around Ireland, but around, for example, the Middle East. And I've um, I acted in the case involving the bombing of the Israeli embassy in London and so on. And these are difficult, and people have very strong and powerful feelings about the very fact that you're doing such cases. But you know that in many ways it, the dial can change, can shift. And so um, that's what sustains you. In the case of Xinjiang, Helena, your, your view is you keep plugging away yeah. in the belief that enough people do that, at some point something shifts. I, I share a thing with you, James. In the, I used to chair the British Council. I did from 1998 until 2004. And during that time, I went quite a bit to China. I met wonderful people, really wonderful people. And I, and I, and I loved my engagement with people who were in the education world, in the cultural world, and so on. And so I... I do think that you have to believe that governments get things badly wrong. He is a nationalist, but, there's a, but there are nationalist governments on the rise around the world instead of that sort of multilateralism. So, but you know that that pendulum will eventually change. I hope it just shifts um, before I pop my clogs. But, you know, it, it, you do know, <laughs> you do know that things change and you have to keep alive that golden thread, you know, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. You keep alive the sense that you can make a difference. And, and Yatra, what about you? Do you think, and particularly on the whole human rights agenda in China, do you feel that notwithstanding Helena's optimism and determination, that the reality is more than ever you're hitting your head against a brick wall? Well, I mean, I've worked on this job in human rights in, uh, with regard to China for over 10 years. So it's just getting worse and worse. But, uh, you know, I look at the issue not in terms of the progress we made. I look at the issue in terms of if there were no us, if there were no human rights activists, if there were no people who say, hey, this is so wrong, we must fight, fight against it, what, could, what it could have been. I mean, right now, one million are in the camps. If there were no resistance, nobody spoke up, they can put another 5 million in the caps, right? So that's how I look at the issue. Another point I want to make is that a lot of Uyghurs, they used to be you know, doctors or accountants or cashiers. They had never thought, you know, I would be a human rights activist. Then something happened to their family. Their life 
and the way they carried themselves entirely transformed. I just felt, you know, people who became another person, they were so courageous. You would not expect them to be the people they are without this kind of persecution. I think that is extremely inspiring. Thank you. Abdul, I'm going to give you the last word, but forgive me. I know that we're talking about this and you're living it. I would like some help to know from you what you think you'd like people in positions like mine, journalists, people in the media, people who have a certain freedom of speech. What would you like us to do? I think the first thing we need to do, like uh, we need the grassroots movement. All of us should say that it's really important. We need to tell, we need to make awareness, we need to ask people to speak up. And the second thing, we are customers customers of Chinese products. Now the like uh, Uyghur forced labor is every province in China. So like not only uh, ban the product from uh, Uyghur homeland, it's not enough. We need to um, ban other products related, infiltrated with the like forced labor. And the third, actually we are supporter of this oppression because of our money. We are using cheap product from China we never think where, where are they from. So actually we can do, we can solve the problem if we can, if we want to, if we decide it. Abdulwadi, thank you. And, and honestly, thanks to, to all of you. I, I have a particular thank you to make, in fact, to each of you. One is to Raffaello, because I think to come on these conversations and be the person who says the things that you least want to hear is actually sometimes the most valuable. And I think a realistic account of the prospect for making progress on this, which is not much, is, is, is a hard thing to say, particularly when you hear the terrible stories of what's happened to Abdulwali's family. And I think that's incredibly important. I do think that, Yacho, your point, which is, if there's no human rights watch, if there's no one making the the case, if if they're not people like you, Helena, getting up and and speaking on this, the 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 risks of things moving further and faster are much much greater. It, it's very interesting, Abdul William, about your point around grassroots movements, i.e., in activism, consumer boycotts. How you do those in a way that they don't damage the people who are already most uh, affected by what's happening in in Xinjiang. Uh, and the support, I wrote down as you were speaking, supply chain politics. How do we understand the whole connectivity of this, I think, is really interesting. But I suppose I come back to your answer, Abdulwali, at the very, very start of this, which is really important in terms of, I suppose, the journey for people like me and Helena around China, a China that we experienced in the 1990s that was opening, not without its problems, but was opening and embracing the world, and a China that since 2009 has been making its own rules and obviously in Xinjiang with devastating consequences. So I think that there is going to have to be an effort to try to take on Raffaello's prescription, if you like, which is disentangling some things, identifying individuals, but seeing it in a in terms of the comprehensive relationship, which is, as you said, Raffaello, very complicated. Um, thank you uh, for, for helping me. I hope, even though the, these things do move around, I hope you realise that actually in talking this through, I do come to a kind of clearer understanding of what to think. So, 
Helena, thank you for your time. Yacho, you too. Abdulwili as well. I hope that it eventually stops raining in Bergen. And Raphaelo, very nice to meet you in this conversation. I hope we get to talk again. Thank you so much for listening to this thinking, and thank you to Raffaello, to Helena, to Abdulweli, and to Yachio as well. This is the last of our six thinkings on the China problem. And as I say that, I realize how silly this whole undertaking is. China, a country of 1.4 billion people, people themselves that have countless connections with each other and around the world, how can you try to draw threads of sense from a place, people, and culture of such scale? But if you've listened to all six, then you probably have noticed that we have, for the most part, come at these questions hesitantly, and I hope with a little humility. We know they're complicated, and we know too that we're talking about more than the idea of countries. We're talking about something much more human than that. But there's no ducking from the fact that we end somewhere different from where we started, different, in fact, from where I expected to start. The course of these thinkings have coarsened my thinking. I'm more concerned not less, by the China problem. Not, I'm sorry to say, the China problem that tends to make the news here in the UK, TikTok and Huawei, Cambridge University and Chinese funding, but Hong Kong and Xinjiang, where a hardening of China's one-party apparatus of control sits below the threshold of any meaningful international response, but well above the requirement for outrage. Xi Jinping's China is not Deng Xiaoping's China the country set on a path of reform and opening up that I found in the mid-1990s, nor the China of economic liberalization and international integration of the Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao years. In that sense, China is not a problem. Xi Jinping is a problem. And the challenge for the West is to choose its fights with China, not to choose to fight China on everything, everything from technology, academic exchange, and a whole range of other issues. In fact, if climate change and biodiversity, global vaccine distribution, and global trade are to work, that's only going to happen with China at the table. A G2 of the US and China is, in some form or another, going to have to happen. Which, of course, means that it's even more important to be clear about the fights that the West does choose. Above all, the fight to defend human rights from Xinjiang to Hong Kong to stand up to a new and ratcheting authoritarianism. This was the last of our thinkings on China. Even if you take a different view, and many people will, I hope that listening to competing opinions has helped you come to a clearer sense of what you think. A tortoise, this is how we try to make sense of the complicated and fast-moving world we're in. And if you want to help us to do just that, then please do join us. Please become a member of our newsroom and take part in the debate that shapes our journalism. Because we're not only a slow newsroom, we're an open one. We want to hear what you think. You can become a member by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend, and then you can use my code, James50. It's all one word, James, and then the number 50. And you get 50% off. You'll get access to all of our journalism, all of our podcasts, and you'll be able to come to our live thinkings. And that's where we try, we certainly try, to make sense of the news every day. This episode was produced by Morgan Childs, Clitzia Sala, and Katie Gunning. My huge thanks to them. Tom Kinsella wrote the original music. Thinking with James Harding is a podcast from Tortoise Studios, which is run by Kerry Thomas and Basha Cummings.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.